Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Deep Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Creppy and he is Aaron Fentress and we'll delve into Oregon's win over Arizona, a 41-19 win as the Ducks improve to 4-0 on the season, start off Pac-12 play with a win, uh, albeit yes, obviously a win that obviously had to be had uh, and was basically nothing short of a guarantee to be had against the last place team in the Pac-12. But what do we make of this game, Aaron? Because uh, it was another one-score game there into the fourth quarter, and for as much as it was a game that everybody was expecting a more uh, lopsided outcome and in the end turned into a 22-point game, uh, it was uncomfortable there for a little while. So what do we make of this particular performance? You know, it's always strange, nitpicking 22-point victories. Do you remember back in the day when like winning by 22 was like a blowout? Like a 32-10 college football game would be like, oh, my God, they blew them out. And then today in this era, you know, the high-powered offenses, sometimes you look at games like this, you're like, oh, they only won by 22. Look at the competition. So I always feel a little bad about that. But when you're talking about a team ranked third in the nation that has playoff aspirations, national championship aspirations, you look at things differently. And Arizona is a pretty bad football team, yet the fact they were able to run the ball pretty effectively – control the clock, which isn't a huge deal for an Oregon team. You're not worried about time time of possession necessarily. And then as far as I'm concerned, if their quarterback had been competent, they might win this football game. Most of his interceptions were like, what are you doing types of interceptions? They weren't even really interceptions I felt that were quote unquote forced. So I come away feeling like they won, they, they got the job done, but the fact that it was in the fourth quarter and they were at one possession is extremely alarming considering who they were playing. Yeah, again, not a terribly uh, impressive performance once again. To the big picture first before we get into certain specifics within the game. I think it's an instance where in back-to-back weeks, and obviously I wrote it after the game, but it's back-to-back weeks where obviously you had an FCS opponent in Stony Brook and now here the last place team in the Pac-12 who, other than Colorado, there is nobody who is going to be vying for last place along with Arizona right now. I mean, even Washington State is probably – just a more talented team. Certainly has more talent on it. We'll see how this season goes. But you have back-to-back opponents where you have a feeling like this team played down, that they were in competitive games for no particular reason, and to where the opponent leaves the game having lost, feeling better about themselves in the game <laughs> than Oregon does having won. Right. And that's really the bigger issue in the big picture is, you know, Stony Brook leaves the game going like, hey, we just went toe-to-toe with the number three team in the country, and uh, we were able to run a little bit successfully there, now weren't we? And we aren't even that good. They probably had a parade when they got home. <laughs> yeah, and Arizona gets to come in and go, we weren't even supposed to be remotely competitive, and we ran for 200 yards. Hey, not for nothing. Now you could say again, oh, well, that was all by design, and this, that, the other. Hey, we'll get into certain specifics. But point is, is, oh, well, they dominated the third quarter in time possession. Yes, they did. They dominated control, and that's why there was a little bit of a play distribution the way it was. That goes into it. No question. Um, the defense is allowed to stop the other team. <laughs> really? Without, without takeaways. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to let them convert on third down? Is that what you're saying? You don't have to let them convert on fourth down at will. Oh, you don't four, have to let four, them get right, fourth yeah. and short. You don't mm-hmm. have to let them sustain five, ten-plus play <laughs> drives over the course of a game. So those are the things that I think are to the course of the game in the to this game. 
and to the big picture of issues that have been underlying throughout all four games, all four wins, and that is truly the ultimate big picture and what matters. And yes, in a 22-point win. But as you mentioned, when they're going up against better competition, starting this week on the road at Stanford, who, look, they may not have a great season. They may have a better season. The North is not very good right now. Cal is not very good. Washington State is not very good. Washington had to just edge Cal in overtime and obviously has gotten off to a rough start. Stanford could be the third best team in this division. And frankly, I'm not think I don't as good as Oregon State's gotten off to, that's for you know, for, for you and Nick to discuss on that podcast. <laughs> but ultimately, it's not a foregone conclusion who the second best team in this division is. So Stanford may end up being an eight or nine win team. They could also end up being a six win team. We don't know yet, but we do know that this particular series has been competitive football over the years. And no, it's not the toughest place to play, but this is a team. That after two home games where, like I say, the opponent ends up leaving probably feeling better about themselves than Oregon does, that's not ideal. Uh, and there are underlying issues, I would say, more so on the defensive side than the offensive side. No, neither side's perfect. There's always things to work on. A team can improve over the course of a, a, a game, over the course of a season, to be sure. But there were definitely some things to take from this where you go, man, they've got some areas to... I don't want to say clean up. Clean up is this all-encompassing term thrown around in, in, in sport. They've got some things to really get some answers for here. And quickly. Because this is a better team than they have played the past two weeks, for sure. But yes, you're right. Stanford's better and their yeah. quarterback's better. And that's the thing. These last two games, the quarterbacks weren't up to the to the job. Especially uh, no. Arizona's. This McKee kid from uh, Stanford has been pretty solid. He's definitely better than those two guys. So, yeah, it's like you were saying, it's a better team. And I think because the quarterback's good, it's a bigger threat. However, this is not the Stanford team that Oregon has been tripped up by in the past no. because they're not running the no. box particularly well. And their run defense is awful, which is the thing that usually tripped up Oregon in the past. And it's gotten worse. And the thing is, is you can't just say, oh, well, it gets extrapolated, you know, bent out of shape or skewed because of a couple of plays or because UCLA did this or that. No, 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 no. This is not a current issue. This is not a recency bias issue. Go back in the numbers for Stanford run defense. This is, to Aaron's point, this is not the Stanford defense of yesteryear. It's not. It's run defense numbers. The Cardinal have fallen off hard over the last few years in run defense. This isn't a 2021 issue. This isn't a 2020 issue. This is an issue that dates back multiple years. And, hey, that personnel ain't changing. So, on one hand, for while this will be a tougher opponent, and particularly from the quarterback position, even if they get some of their running backs back, Oregon should, should be able to, relatively speaking, contain that ground game and should be able to find success on the ground against Stanford, which it has done successfully in the past. And C.J. Verdell, in particular, has done successfully in the past. So there are signs. We'll get more into this week's matchup uh, in a moment. But in terms of this past week, Aaron, it's another instance of kind of these mid-game lulls or drops in, what do you want to say, drops in production. Uh, again, the third quarter because of just the way it played out. You can't necessarily, what are you going to critique the offense? They didn't really have the ball. It's more about the defense. But I think it speaks more to elite teams, and this is really the, the where we're grading, you know, things here. And it is to, to Aaron's point on, on a bit of a curve here. They are the number three team in the country who managed to gain ground in the polls despite this performance. But that's beside the point. This is a team who is aspiring for a third straight conference title. Obviously, has the want and desire to go undefeated while it still can and make the college football playoff. Well, if you're going to be at that level and in the ranks and conversation with Alabama and Georgia, and we'll see who else ends up making part of this conversation. It's an evolving thing, obviously, on a week-to-week basis, whether Oklahoma's good or not, or Penn State or Iowa or whoever, you know, Notre Dame, Cincinnati, you name it. But if you're going to be in that class, 
you have to be able to sustain over the course of a game. Yeah, there are ebbs and flows. Nothing's ever, you know, at a, at a absolutely peak level intensity for 150, 160 snaps uh, offensive defense combined over the course of a game. But there can't be such extremes. And Oregon has had some extremes here. Do you think there is something to these mid-game lulls that we have seen? Or is this a little bit of a limited sample happenstance? You know, for me, this all goes back to last year as well when they were pretty inconsistent. And you know, They lost three games last year. I know people like to say they won the Pac-12 title, but for me, they were four and three. Um, they weren't a championship caliber team. And there was tons of inconsistencies last year. And they have come up again this season. Now, I think the reason why most people aren't flipping out about a lot of this is the fact that they beat Ohio State. And that was such a huge win on the road. But I felt at the time that maybe that was more that they upset Ohio State and they won a game that maybe seven out of ten times they might lose. And that the real Oregon team is what we saw last year, the inconsistency, and what we've seen at that time, it was just Fresno, but then we saw it again against Stony Brook, and we saw it again against Arizona. I think this team is winning games right now, other than Ohio State, which they, they rightfully won, but it was a coin flip game. The other three games, I think they won because they were by far better athletically and had way more talent. But from an execution standpoint, <laughs> they weren't really out executing teams and beating them. They overwhelmed Stony Brook eventually. They overwhelmed Arizona eventually. But from an execution standpoint, especially on offense, and of course on defense, they're just not very good. Like there's nothing about them that like I've said preseason. What about this team is special? The defense is special. The running game is special. The passing game is special. They have a lot of special talent because of the recruiting classes, but they're just not a very good team as far as executing. And execution is what leads to consistency. If you're consistently executing, you're not going to have those lulls, especially when you have the talent advantage. When you have the talent advantage and you keep having these lulls against teams that you should overwhelm physically, you're just not playing good football, but you're getting away with it because you're physically better. Well, I do think that they do have when they are when the plays are there in particular. And again, so like if you go by rushing yards per game, it can get skewed a little bit because again, they obviously only had 55 plays this past week. But when you get into things like total offensive efficiency, yards per play as a whole, Oregon's doing pretty well there. I mean, they, they are doing quite solid. You know, are they elite? Well, you know, again, you can get into, you can kind of argue and, and, and bicker a little bit here or there, but ultimately, they are putting up 423 yards per game. Against whom? They play two of the worst teams in the country. That's my, you know, that's my point. But continue, continue. Yeah, but did they pad stats to the nth degree against those teams? They couldn't because they weren't good enough. That's my point. They weren't getting, they were not getting stopped ad nauseum by Arizona. They weren't. They weren't. They scored on their first four positions. They weren't getting stopped by Arizona relentlessly, not on offense. You know, they, and the ground game when they were actually getting carries to their running backs was quite good. And yeah, it gets skewed a little bit on their first down numbers because Travis Dye had his 53-yard run on a first down, but they were averaging four yards per carry on the other first downs. Yeah. So they were having success there. It wasn't as though Arizona was causing all kinds of havoc. They weren't. But I don't think that's the bar we're talking about. Two, the two sacks was two of the three tackles for luck. Well, the point is, is when we're talking about, well, is the offense moving the football? Or is, are they getting, when you're asking, all right, well, where are they uh, uh, truly great or elite or where, where, where are some of those things? I think the ground game has not just the capability of being in that conversation. I think it's right on up there, quite honestly. Are they going to be leading the country at the top of numbers in certain areas? Well, maybe not. They may not be in the top five, but I think they've got a really, really sound ground attack. Now, has the passing game been overwhelming in terms of pure yards? No. But have they been efficient? Even on a night where Anthony Brown Jr. doesn't have a great completion percentage. But was his night going to be wildly better? All right, he goes basically 50% for all intents and purposes. If he completes three or four more passes 
So he's 14 of 21. Are we now saying, oh boy, he's an elite quarterback because he's 14 of 21? It depends on when the completions no. are, what kind of completions they are. But that, but, but it goes to my point of like, so basically, where are we finding the criticism? He was efficient. He made some good decisions. Yes, there are a lot of 50-50 balls over four games that, on one hand, they are called 50-50 balls for a reason, that have not gone Oregon's way, that have not been the best placed, including, look, the, the overthrow to Pittman. On one hand, if you're going to miss, you miss over. And Anthony Brown Jr. has done a very nice job on if he's going to miss, miss long. He has not thrown an interception. The takeaways is part of what makes this team elite right now. They obviously lead the country in turnover margin. That's pretty big. However, from an offensive standpoint, there are some throws where he's got to make them. It can't just be, oh, well, if you're going to miss it, miss it over. Yeah, but you got to make it. Because if you can't make that throw against an Arizona or a Stony Brook, what are you going to do against teams who have better corners like Stanford, who is better, certainly better than the last two teams. Frankly, Ohio State's corners weren't that good. Their best didn't play. So they have not played great corners yet. And their passing game, while efficient, has not been elite. They've distributed the ball a ton at the receiver position, an absolute ton. So outside of John Johnson third, like basically nobody else has any catches. It's been, it's been so spread out, but that's, Again, a small sample size, but I think you're going to see a lot of distribution there. To the defensive side, it's been takeaways, but there's been a lot of yards given up, and I do think giving up 202 rushing yards to Arizona is not a great sign. And to your point, I think there were things from the Ohio State game where you go, oh, well, they held Ohio State to whatever I'm rushing. Did they? Yeah, Ohio State was through for 450. Exactly, 100%. Or, or did Ohio State, for some inexplicable reason... <laughs> Give up on its ground game because, oh yeah, it was throwing for 484 yards. Because they did allow 4.1 yards per carry on 31 carries. So, and that was with a couple of sacks of of C.J. Stroud, obviously. So, I think there are some underlying issues with the run defense as a whole that have been identified over four games, not one or two. I think it has been so far all four games. I think that's an area. And look, we see we will see this week if they have made substantive corrections and progress. All of this bearing in mind that this is a defense that lost Justin Flo long term, Drew Mathis long term, Jackson Leduc long term, Kayvon Thibodeau missed two and a half games and played ten snaps this past weekend. Mace Funa was out. Braden Swinson's been out for two games. Is going to miss a third. You start knocking. There are not a lot of teams who could lose that many pieces from their front seven in particular and put up gaudy numbers. If we're going to be tell the whole story in fairness here, let's be fair. There aren't a lot of teams who could lose as many personnel and as much key pieces in the front seven as Oregon has in the first month of the season and come out the other side, leading the country in turnovers <laughs> and four and Next man so up. So there is something to be said for that. Next man up. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Right. That, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a great, that's, it's, it's a nice bumper sticker, but you know, sooner or later, there does come a bit of a breaking. Point. Okay. So hold on a second. So go back. Listen, I don't think we disagree. I just think we just are coming at it a little differently. I'm not saying they, they played poorly to the point where you're, oh, this is a bad football team. I'm saying that everything they, they did in that game comes with an asterisk because of who they were playing. They should have been, they should have sliced and diced this team. It should, they should have had 41 into the third, right? It should have been over. Instead, you're one, you're up one possession and Arizona has the ball in the fourth. There's no way to spin that everything you did in that game was not very good based on a top 10, top five standard. Based on an Oregon State standard, they were great. Oregon State has been in the bowl game in years. Based on where they're ranked and what's expected of them and all the recruiting talent, et cetera, et cetera. They looked extremely ordinary against, and by ordinary, I mean, they look like to me like the number 19th team in the country, not number three. That's what I'm saying. So, and that's been a pattern. Now, defensively, yeah, there's been injuries and things like that. But again, it's Arizona. If you brought me injuries against UCLA, yeah, UCLA is doing really well offensively, but Arizona shouldn't matter because 
everyone on Oregon's two deep, <laughs> the second string defensive guys would probably all be starting at Arizona. So that's what that's all I'm saying. So I think we agree. It's just looking at it a little differently. Yeah, we we agree there for sure. It, it's more the point though of that. Look, with Stony Brook, it was as overmatched they were. Obviously, obviously, I'm not beginning to make make excuses there. Their offensive line had some size and a lot of experience. Well, you can't teach that. And Oregon's guys who were in that game, particularly in the front seven, some, not everybody, not 100%, but some of the guys that they were relying on where they have had some issues on the edges in particular and at the second level in some areas, not Noah Sewell, not you know Brandon Dorless, but some of the other guys that they've had in the front seven who have had to play because of these injuries and absences, they're smaller. They're younger. They don't have as many game reps as a fifth-year or sixth-year player. Now, again, is that everybody they're going up against happens to be that way? No, of course not. But in a couple of instances, it has been. Now, again, look, they'll have some additional guys back. So when we get into things like pass rush, will that improve? Well, yes, having Kayvon Thibodeau back is is awfully nice to, to improving pass rush. I think Braden Swinson, quite honestly, is an even bigger cog in the entire machine, though, because... As enormous as Thibodeau is, he's the best pass rusher in the country, having Swinson back with him, one, you can team them up together and you can't double team everybody. And two, it allows and ensures that Brandon Dorless played one of the two defensive tackle positions and he's been playing at end. And they haven't, and he's done fine, but they haven't had the luxury of being able to match as much personnel against two tight end sets that they have seen over and over and over again here to start the season. They did it better against Ohio State because they had the bodies. They don't. They have not had the bodies the last few weeks. Overmatched opponents are not. Sooner or later, somebody's going out there with seven guys blocking, and you just ain't matching them by way of bodies. Now, you could say, hey, well... This is just the way they're going to go about it strategically, and it makes some sense. What? Yeah, but between youth, size, and experience, hey, sooner or later, the other team is going to find some things. And give them credit. The other team's allowed to try. And these two teams <laughs> did. They brought their best, and they gave it a whirl. But, yeah, if they if they both don't you know, give the ball away at nauseam, things might even be a little bit different. But that's the other side of it, too. You know, there's something to be said for the defense coming up with takeaways. Something to be said for the defense coming up with interceptions in and around the red zone and in the end zone. You know, those are clutch plays. Something to be said for them. So it's not all negative. It's no. not all doomsday. No. This is still the number three team in the country who's 4-0. No, they're ranked. Yeah. But, but there are obviously still some underlying issues, particularly I would say more so on the defensive side. And as much as absences and injuries have played a part in it, I do agree with Aaron in that you get to a point of saying, listen, sooner or later, yo, 202 yard, you know, rushing yards allowed to Arizona, who came in averaging less than 80 and who came in with an offensive line giving up 10 sacks in three games and you got one while giving up 202 rushing yards. That's not good. That's not good. Now, did some pressure help lead to the five interceptions? Yes. Yes. Some of them. The interception to Wright, the interception to, to Michael Wright in the back of the end zone, which should never have been thrown. Yeah, exactly. was thrown on a scrambling quarterback to the left, counter across his body, and he was getting pressured. Should have just sailed it into the fifth row and forget about it, but Even hey, the screen, he makes that mistake. The first pick, the screen. The screen, yeah, yeah, the screen was pressured, and he throws it to nobody, knowing that there was only one defender there. That's what Jed, and Jed Fish really kind of he alluded to it yesterday in his press conference. He just goes like, we had everybody blocked, and you throw it where you don't see it, and he was literally the only defender who's even to worry about, right. and you just gift him the ball. Be that as it may. <laughs> Pressure creates a little bit of those situations. Uh, and a team that has had, obviously, without without Thibodeau, has obviously faced a little bit, of, and Swinson, and Foon at different points, has faced some challenges in creating pressure. Well, when they've gotten it, they've forced some really critical errors by opponents. There's something to be said and given credit there. On the other hand, there have been certain schematic measures taken by these opponents, Fresno State, 
Stony Brook, Arizona. And Ohio State mimicked a little bit of it along the way that I do think. 12 personnel? Is this your 12 personnel? This is, this is two tight end stuff. Yeah. You know, and last week, Arizona even broke it out with 22. You know, not, and 12 was on about, God, you hardly ever see 20 about 15 or so plays. But yeah, but that, but it hit him for a 17 yard pass. And look, like I say, some of it, you could say, oh, you know, it's gimmicky plays, not exactly what they did. Hey, they did it is the point. And that's where I say the defense is allowed to make stops just before the takeaways. You can do that. <clears throat> so here, and look, credit to them. They came out and saw some things that they wanted to line up. Now, ultimately, the majority, over one majority of the game for Arizona, they lined up in 11 personnel with one tight end and one back. And they ran the ball effectively there. Their quarterback ran the ball effectively there. Now, it was, I say, there, there's not a lot that this defense can hang its hat on in, in terms of its performances outside of the takeaways the last two games. And those are huge. Those are enormous. So, But the, in terms of yards allowed, yeah. it's uh, it's not been a great performance the last couple of weeks. The Ducks rank 103rd in the nation total defense, 426.5. If you take away the Ohio State game, where I think it was 612, right? Then their average drops to 364, which is still 71st in the country. They rank 70th in run defense. Uh, yards per game allowed. Um, and here's their, uh, 40, excuse me, 46th and third down conversion rate on offense. And they're 102nd in defensive third down conversion rate, allowing 44.3%. So like you say, they, they, they should learn that you can make stops without creating turnovers. Turnovers though. And the fourth they, down numbers, which were great against Ohio State and led to the, t- you know, right. to the changes in possession. You know, it was fourth and short. You could say statistics bear in Arizona's favor. Yes, they do. But again, you're allowed to stop them. Right. And they are, though, like you said, they lead the country in forced turnovers, 13, and they're 29th in rushing offense. So the rushing offense has been solid. They're just not, they're just not impressive for me given the competition. So we'll see what happens moving forward. Yeah. Look, I, there are individual performances on the defense that are spectacular. Spectacular. No overselling it. Bennett Williams and Verone McKinley III are both playing absolutely terrific. Terrific. I mean, what Bennett Williams has done the last three weeks in particular, he, was, he wasn't even thrown at by Fresno State. I mean, he, he didn't record a statistic because they, they literally didn't even look in his direction most of the game. But the last three weeks, he has made open field tackles that just it makes for one tackle in the box score. But put the interceptions aside, and obviously he had two of them with the pick six this past weekend. He has made enormous plays. Enormous. And not just on defense. He had a, a brutal hit on a kickoff coverage this past week. He trucked the guy. So he has played outstanding this first month of the season. McKinley has gotten off to a terrific start to start the season. And again, I mentioned guys in the front seven who, all right, there are some struggles there. But Noah Sewell is obviously racking up tackles like crazy. And Dorless has played well. And Keon Ware-Hudson got some push this past weekend in particular. Trevin Mai created some rush off the edge this past weekend. So it's not, again, it's not all doom and gloom by any stretch of the imagination. But other than the takeaways and some great individual performances, yeah, it's hard to say where this defense is hanging its hat. Outside of that, and I will say, the one other critical area, if you're going to be giving up yards as they have been, they really haven't been beaten over the top. Other than one play against Stony Brook. One. Even this past week, the longest play of the game was 35 yards. Again, ironically enough, out of 12 personnel. And Jordan Happel fell over. Other than that, in terms of week one, take away the primary weapon, Ronnie Rivers, they did. Week two, all right, hey, Ohio State's receiving core is going to do that to a lot of people. A lot of people. Mm-hmm. But fourth down stops and contained the running game and didn't get beat over the top by that passing game, no matter how many yards they gave up. Week three, one play. One. This past week, Berry Hill. He got free on that one play where the defender fell over. Outside of that, they guarded the sweeps. Four of their six tackles for loss came on Barry Hill's jet sweeps. 
mean, they guarded that really well. They, they had that one down pat. So in terms of executing certain points of the game plan of take away this weapon, they've actually done a pretty darn good job of that. And you could say, again, Ohio State's numbers and this and the passing. Hey, Alave and Wilson didn't break free. They did on the one tempo touchdown. One. And that wasn't truly beaten over the top. That was just beaten because they were looking down at the play card. That's it. That's it. So if you're going to give up yards, make them earn it because because if you're going to give up and they have to play 10 and 12 and 14 plays, you're increasing the likelihood that you get a takeaway. Well, that is the other side. That is the yin to the yang. That is the that is the other side of things here is that, yeah, when you make the other team earn it, they also can be susceptible to giving the ball away. And obviously these these opponents have have played ball and upheld that their end of the bargain in that regard. Now whether or not you know whether or not Stanford will do that, well, that you know, that's a different that's a different story. But in terms of what to take from this game, again, like I say, I, I think the offense as a whole was efficient and effective. Yeah, all right, yeah, cut the, the, the two sacks obviously were not great, but truly, outside of that, were they really truly bad offensive plays? Not Really? Again, you can talk about missed throws. Don't don't get me wrong. But bad plays. You just go like, what in the world? No, there weren't real head scratchers. There weren't. Not really. So the offense was effective and efficient. Was it great? No. No, no, no. Don't misunderstand me. But it was effective and efficient. And put up a good clip of yards over just 55 plays. So in terms of what they could, I mean, seven yards per play, you got to be fair. And six of 12 on third down when the average distance to gain was close to eight. The irony was, is that it was first down passing where they got knocked off schedule, but then they made it up for it by third, by converting on third down. So, and as a whole, it's another one of those performances where, listen, if you're a Ducks fan, you're looking at it going, are you going to worry about this a month or two months from now? No. You're caught up in it in the course of the week. And I'm not saying that's wrong. You only worry about it if the signs you saw in this game pop up later. And you're like, against oh, the yeah. better opponent. We lost against today because the of the stuff opponent. we were doing against Arizona. And, uh, but let's put it this way. Let's not, get, let's not get into the highs and lows of, oh, well, you didn't like this throw from Anthony Brown here or there. Hey. His, his completion percentage against Ohio State wasn't otherworldly. But after that game, everybody was singing his praises. Why? Because he made smart decisions. He did make smart decisions. He was 17 of 35 against Ohio State. He was just under 50%. He was 10 of 21 against Arizona. Oh, well, let's not compare the defenses. I'm with you. Except one thing. Why, why, why was it all fantastic against Ohio State? But now this is like, what, reprehensible? Hardly. Hardly. Like I say, if he completed three more passes against Arizona, that was going to make him what? An All-American? Well, yeah, but I mean, you expect on, him to you know, be, you gotta be fair. But like, you expect him to be better against the lesser teams. Like you, you want sure. you want to see you know, if fifty percent against Ohio State and he's smart and you win the game, fine. Fifty percent against Stony Brook or, or Arizona, it's like, okay, what what's going on here? Not just and it's not just on him, it's on the entire no. passing game. Like what why are you not just slicing these guys up with all these four star receivers and you know, Joe Moorhead, he's going to, I remember last year, Joe Moorhead's going to open it up and be more, they're going to be more explosive than they were under Sari Arroyo. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Well, listen. Not even one, against weak first, teams. First off, first off, in terms of all these four-star receivers, you're still talking about a lot of young guys. Number one. I, I, I hear there's, you. There's young a little guys bit can of a gap fast. in between. Young guys can run yeah. fast and catch the ball. They can run but, a post and a go and a wheel. But it's still their, you know, their third, their fourth games. I, I for agree. one. Two, in terms of, be listen. Dynamic. To your point about explosiveness in the offense and other things. And again, they're, they are putting up pretty high points and, and total yards. Um, all I heard for a couple of years was that the thing that was holding back a top 25 offense that made a top 25 offense totally unacceptable and a abysmal failure was that Justin Herbert didn't run the ball. That was the worst thing in the world. All I heard in 2018 and 2019, it was why... Totally unacceptable. It's ridiculous. Except now they have a true dual threat who likes to run, wants to run, 
And hey, the minute Joe Moore had showed up, said, we're going to run the ball with the quarterback and everybody was celebrating and was ready to throw a parade. Now this past weekend, the quarterback runs the ball even more than the running backs individually. And now it's what he ran too much. Well, because he was he ran for what, 12, going, 12 times for 41 yards. That's that's what people were complaining about. If he ran sure, 12, but he ran a, 12 yeah, times for 90 yards, then it'd be like, no big deal. A couple of them were were sacks taking away some yards, you say. So it's really close to like 10 for probably close to 50. Okay. All right. Yeah. And not every one of them is going to break free for, you know, 30 plus. You know, he had a 19 yard run in there. Again, I thought he made good decisions. Obviously, the one decision on uh, where, where he kept it and should have pitched it to CJ, that's yes. 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 Outside of that, were they really, again, egregious decisions by the quarterback in either the passing game or the ground game? No. Oh. He was effective. He was efficient. Was he great? No, he was not. But he did what was asked of him. They won by 22 points. Now, again, yeah, the defense came through with seven of those. But, yeah. You know, as a whole, let, let's, let's sum it up this way. They weren't bad, like you said. They were efficient. They, but they have to play a lot better than they did against better teams because all those things are going to be reduced against better teams. And then are you capable of converting on third down against a good team when it counts? Are you capable mm-hmm. of running the ball consistently? Are you capable of stopping a team? Heaven forbid they're losing by a touchdown in the fourth quarter and they can't stop the run. That's when it's going to matter. Didn't matter against Arizona. It's going to matter in a game like that. So that's why I think I there's angst. Let me let me let me yeah. bring up something. You brought this up last week yourself when you talked about there aren't a ton of teams out there who are just dominating everybody. So this past week we saw Clemson lose to North Carolina State. Number six Oklahoma entered the fourth quarter down 13-10 to West Virginia before winning 16-13. Number five Iowa undefeated was trailing 14-7 at halftime to Colorado State before winning 24-14. Number ten Florida had to come back against Tennessee. Fresno State, which we all believe is a pretty damn good team after we wondered about. Who they were uh, when they when they hung with Oregon? Mm-hmm. They're play, they're ranked number eighteen. They're playing UNLV. They're down twenty one nine in the third before coming back and winning. And then of course Auburn twenty third ranked. They were down twenty four. Never should have been twenty third ranked, but be that as I think the twenty third still. They're they're and also still yeah, should, so shouldn't have been in the first place. It should be now twenty four twelve at halftime down to Georgia State. So. You know, there are other teams out there experiencing the same things and actually even worse. So again, I don't, I don't get the impression that I or even James are saying this guy is falling and this is all bad. But I think both of us agree that they play like this. They play like they did against Stony Brook in Arizona, against Stanford, Washington, UCLA, Oregon State. They're losing at least one, if not two of those games. Would you agree with that? I'd say that at least one. Because if you cannot leave yourself that vulnerable to the run and to two tight ends in a division that absolutely, unequivocally, outside of Washington State, (laughs) plays two tight ends. That's all everybody else does. Oregon State's looking at the film right now and going, we can't wait for the Civil War. (laughs) We're going to run all over Oregon. Uh. It has no name. It is the Oregon Oregon State game. <laughs> My bad. And it will remain that. Again, I've I've coined it the big one because I think there's a crossover applicability, but again, nobody asked for my two cents. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. In terms of the week ahead against Stanford, as you mentioned before, Aaron, obviously, uh, Tanner McKee is, he might be, might be the most prototypical passer in the Pac-12 currently starting. Again, we're not going into every which freshman and what is yeah. going to be in the future for everybody on everybody's roster. But in terms of who's actually playing right now, he might be the most prototypical player. And he's not purely a pocket passer either. Uh, But he is obviously very, very effective. Other than Anthony Brown, in terms of his touchdown interception ratio, which is six to nothing, 
McKee is 8 nothing, Right. And is completing over 67% of his passes. Passer efficiency rating that's third in the league at 164.6. He's off to a very fine start in that regard. And he has and is surrounded by, in terms of targets to throw to, as is always the case with Stanford, no matter what, no matter who the quarterback is, boy, you know that the situation is by way of tight end and receiver. Everybody is six foot two, six foot three plus. And they're not rail thin. They're not Gumby. They're 220, 235, 240. So he has got a lot of long and vertical weapons to aim for and that is a legitimate threat that will he be himself, a, he's think, six, six, very legitimate he's a six, yeah. six two twenty kid big kid he's a he's like a herbert yeah. and his quote-unquote worst performance by way of completion percentage was last weekend against ucla where he's 19 of 32 for 293 through for his most yards on his fewest completions by way of percentage and had three touchdowns so even in his least accurate game of the season, he had three scores and threw for nearly 300 yards on only 19 completions. <laughs> so he has, again, it, he has gotten off to a terrific... Now, again, some of that is out of necessity, not just because they were losing the game, but because they were down multiple running backs. And that, in terms of this week as well, will be a major, major point in the entire game and the matchup. As big as McKee will be, as difficult a test as the receivers and tight ends will be from Stanford, Stanford will still rely on its ground game to a point. To a point. No, statistically, it is not off to a good start. And yes, it gets skewed in a small sample because they didn't. They basically didn't have anybody last week other than Nathaniel Pete. They had nobody. So, and he's good, but he, you know he can't do it alone. Well, if they get some guys back, if they get particularly Jones, if they get Jones back, that. Opens up some things. I don't have to remind Oregon fans of this. This is this is the same you know the same running back duo you saw a year ago, and Pete broke loose for you know that one big game that Stanford had in last year's season opener. So they have some talent there. Are they more threatening in the receiving capacity and in the passing game this year? Yeah, probably. Probably. You know, as as solid as their running backs are when healthy, in particular. You know, no, this is not the Stanford of Bryce Love. This is not the Stanford of certainly not McCaffrey. Uh, this is not you know it's not those running backs. It's not. This is a Stanford team that is now being built far more for the passing game, but we'll still incorporate tight ends. We'll still incorporate multiple tight ends. We'll still do some power and just between the tackles run game, as long as they have the bodies. And I think that's one of the biggest questions and biggest factors in the entire week from what Stanford's going to bring to the table is, do they have the bodies at running back? Are they actually back on the field? Or are they still down to just one guy with Nathaniel Pete? In which case, well then, you know, if Oregon can sit back and drop seven a lot and have Kayvon Thibodeau and Mace Funa on the edges for 65 to 75% of the snaps in the entire game, that could be a long day for Stanford. Because they are going to be able to generate rush with only three or four guys when those are two of them. And they can afford to drop seven in that case. If you drop seven in the coverage and you have those two up front, I, I like Oregon's chances a lot in that in that regard. Especially if they but, can't run the ball effectively. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. If they are if they only have one guy who they can really lean on in the ground game. If one or more of their other running backs get back this week, all right, well, that, you know, presents some different challenges for sure. And look, I'm not saying the receivers aren't going to be matchup problems. They're going to get theirs. You know, Oregon's got depth at the outside corner position. They do. But that has not been a pristine position, obviously. Not just because they gave up yards against Ohio State. No. Look, they gave up some plays here or there. Huge plays? No. But they also haven't been confronted by a receiving core where there are four players on this team on the Stanford roster who are six to or six three plus and two twenty plus at receiver. Oregon faced the best receiving core in the country in Ohio State, but Alave, Wilson, and Smith and Jingba are not all six six three two hundred thirty five pounds. These are really big guys. These are there are a lot of threats here 
in that in that regard. So I do think there will be matchup difficulties for sure, for sure. I'm actually I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how Oregon matches up by way of personnel in that regard. And that, yeah, we've seen Jamal Hill obviously back on the field a bit the past few weeks. Bennett Williams has played great. We've seen some dime package, some in select moments, mainly third and longs. Do we see more of it against Stanford of all teams? But do we actually see more of it? I'm curious. I don't know. I'm, I'm, how would you approach it, Aaron? If, if Stanford does not have one of its backs back and it's just, again, Nathaniel P can only do so much. He's, you know, he's, he's a good player and he can, he certainly has fine top end speed, but you know, it's not Walter Payton we're talking about. So if they have one running back to lean on and they're really, really, you know, mainly relying on their quarterback and they're very, very big receiving and tight end targets. How would you defensively try to go about defending that? Well, you start out, of course, taking away everything that McKee likes to do in the passing game and then wait and see if the run game can make you pay. If it can't make you pay, then you don't have to adjust because now you can, if they're not running the ball on you when you're primarily trying to take away the pass, then they're going to be in some third and longs unless they're having success. If they're having success, then you have to adjust from that point on. But yeah, if I'm Oregon, I'm going into this game focusing on dealing with McKee. Now, you keep mentioning the running back, and yeah, obviously you have to have guys carry the ball, but the big thing is, is going to be, is the offensive line dominating and gashing you? Because if it is, you can stick anyone back there and they're going to gain yards. You know, do they not, I mean, when you say running back's back, do they not have anybody? They don't have two freshmen sitting there waiting to get in and get some touches? No, they were literally, they were literally down three running backs. On the entire roster. How many do they have on the roster? If I start getting into so walk-ons and everything else, I really don't, you know, I don't. So, like, like I see, okay, so Pete's the guy, then they have Jones. But the point is, is that. Who's hurt? They, Jones and Smith is hurt, right? Jones, Smith, and I believe there was a third, if memory serves me right, from last week. And they had, and, and I believe that might have been it. Last week, uh, Nathaniel Pete had 12 carries, and Isaiah Sanders had one. Otherwise, Tanner McKee was credited with nine carries. Two of them were sacks. That was it. That was the entirety of Stanford's rushing production. 22 carries in the game. Nine of them were by the quarterback. They were that thin. But they were having success throwing the ball, right? I mean, that's the only, that's out of pure necessity because, like I say, <laughs> they didn't have any other bodies. What else are they going to do? Run the triple option with nobody, <laughs> with two tight ends? Now, I'm trying to find uh, how many, how many run backs they, I'm looking up their running backs right now. They, they were down, like I say, they were down multiple guys. No, I, no, I know they were down guys, but do they have six on the roster? Stilkin, Smith, and Jones were all out. And, uh, those are the only other guys who've recorded, uh, substantive numbers. I, uh, Sanders is actually a quarterback who had the, uh, the other carry. So. They were down everybody who who really carries a lot of the weight here, particularly Austin Jones. Austin Jones is, is would be their lead back in a normal circumstance. Right. So they have would four be. main they have four guys who can carry, right? So here's Brendan Brown's a two star two star recruit, so he might be iffy as a true freshman. And three of the four didn't play. Well, the bottom line is that they're they're gonna be thin. Dorian Maddox, watch out for the sixth year senior. Caleb Robinson, sophomore. See, you never know. See, that's the thing. You never know who's going to come out of the backfield. If you, if the offensive line is getting it done, then anyone with any type of ability whatsoever, and if they're all on scholarship, they have ability, is going to be able to make plays. But again, to your point, yes, obviously they're not going to be as special as your starter and you're going to, you're going to key on taking away what they do best, which is McKee. But if the offensive line is getting it done in the running game, creating holes as Arizona did, then I think you're going to have success in the running game, even if you put, you know, a, guy, a little used guys back there. That's all I'm saying. When, when LeGarrette Blunt punched someone in the face, everyone was like, oh crap, what's going to happen to Oregon's running game? LeMichael James happened to Oregon's running game. Redshirt freshman. Who the hell is this LeMichael James guy? <laughs> That's all I'm saying. We, we, you, you can't compare the, the, the depth situation of these two teams it, it, now or even at this point historically. You don't know. You know who Caleb Robinson is? Where you cannot compare the depth situation. If they're still down, the three running backs that were down last week, Stanford's going to be having to air the ball out, and again, they'll get some yards. But I do think that Oregon will have some opportunities there to create rush with 
only four and five bodies and to drop enough guys into coverage to be a real problem. Caleb Robinson, three-star recruit, ranked the 41st best back in the nation. He's a sophomore, had offers from Tech, South Carolina, North Carolina State, Auburn. They can stick him back there. If the offensive line's getting it done, getting it done, he'll, he'll get some yards. For the first time this season. You've never seen someone come out of nowhere or the running back, like running backs in one position. You know this from fantasy. My point man. is, is that if it was, if it was so easy <laughs> and if they were so good, they might have, you know, thought about doing it. I don't know, a week ago when he's they needed, had nobody else. He's needed practice reps. That must have been. So. <laughs> All right. What's yeah, our prediction? Obviously. Let's get to prediction. Yeah. <laughs> so far, I, again, I, I do, I do reserve a little bit. Here in that we have yet to hear from uh, David Shaw this week. He'll be coming up, uh, I believe, in the not too distant future here uh, this morning on Tuesday morning. Uh, but until we get a little bit by way of clarity from Shaw regarding, yeah, their depth situation at running back. I mean, that's a it's a pretty big factor no, in the whole situation. Be. If he comes back and says, "Hey, all three of my guys are going to be playing," well, that's a you know, it's a very different situation. Having said that. Do I think Oregon wins regardless? Yes. Do I think they could even, given that the line came out and I believe it opened up, at, yeah, it opened up at eight, it dropped at one point to seven and a half, maybe even seven at one spot, uh, and is right back at eight. Yeah, I think that this is still an Oregon team that has the capability of handling this Stanford team, really the way it has the past two years. You know, yes, I know it's been competitive. I'm not saying it's going to be "quote unquote" easy. Don't don't misunderstand me. I do think it'll be competitive, but I do think Oregon is the not just better team or more talented team. I think, in particular, if Stanford is down three of its top four running backs, they're also the significantly healthier and deeper team. There's a difference between oh, you have more talent. Yeah, more talented teams lose all the time. This is a more talented team that has played to that level. And I think that this is another opportunity, particularly with the way that Stanford's run defense has been. And no, this is not just a a small sample situation like we talked about before. This has been an ongoing issue for years for them. I think that C.J. Verdell has been effective against Stony Brook. And Stanford, (laughs) if you're talking about Stony Brook earlier, but against Stanford throughout his career, I think he will continue to be so. Uh, He has not gotten a ton of opportunities to carry the ball the past two weeks. I get how they're trying to manage him through games that, you know, they are overmatching their opponents. They've got a bye week coming up after that. This is the time to let the reins loose and to put Verdell back in there for 20-plus carries and let him be him. Let him be the dominant force that he can be for this team as he has been so many times before and as he has been in particular against Stanford throughout his career. Now, again, not alone, not single-handedly, not he's the only guy. No, Travis Dye can be effective too, obviously. He can put up some numbers. You know, last year against Stanford, he had six carries, but he had him for 78 yards. So, you know, Travis Dye has had some success as well, you know, against Stanford. The point is, is I think for Dell, this is a game where he can very much put up a ton of numbers. And passing game-wise, I think you just look for efficiency again, even though that's not necessarily the most appealing word to a fan base. I get it. But Stanford does have, you know, some talent there in the secondary. It does. It has some pretty good corners. Has it, it? It really does. So I think this is a game where you just you pound the rock until Stanford shows that they can actually stop it. And it may not look the sexiest. It may not look the most appealing. But if you can break a couple of long runs along the way, and hey, who knows? If you do it enough, you might just pull a couple of defenders up, and now all of a sudden you've got options in the vertical passing game. I think this may look a little bit more traditional old school style football because it's Stanford and because that's always how it looks when you play Stanford. <laughs> it just is. When is it ever not, you know, a, a just trenches, 
knocking into bodies, big bodies hitting each other kind of style game with them. It just always is that way. And I, I think it's going to shape up for that. I do think Oregon wins, and I do think Oregon wins by multiple scores. So, but again, I reserve a little bit of that, a little bit of that, just in case all of a sudden Stanford comes roaring back with, you know, multiple running backs. But my early pick was 31 17. Uh, I could end up dropping that a touchdown on both sides, quite honestly. I, I very easily could, just because stylistically, I think they're both going to, you know, keep the clock moving a little bit. But I do think Oregon wins, and I do think they win, yeah, by multiple scores. But that doesn't mean I think they just wildly outclass Stanford. I just think they're healthier and and deeper, more talented right now. Right. Well, given the fact that Stanford Stanford's running game is suspect and their run defense is suspect, I have no reason to really believe they're going to win this game. I'm going to give Oregon the benefit of the doubt uh, that they're just a better team, they have the better athletes, and like you said, they're healthier. And whatever mistakes we've seen in the past couple of weeks have made things more interesting than they should have. I would expect they're going to correct enough of those to not allow Stanford to upset them. However, I do think it's going to be an interesting game. I think McKee will, will keep it close for a while. I think Oregon's lack of efficiency in the passing game, as far as I'm concerned, is going to cost them some drives. And I think it's going to be a game in the fourth quarter. What happens there, we'll see. But I'm going to go ahead right now and just say 33-26. I think it's going to be a relatively close game at Oregon. And the end pulls it out. Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing with this is, like I say, you got two starting quarterbacks that have thrown interceptions. So, yeah, Stanford hasn't done a lot on the ground so far this season. Absolutely. Well, Oregon's gotten a lot of the advantage it's had because of takeaways. This may be a game where they're not able to rely on takeaways. And having said that, that just leaves the margin for error that much narrower because... Any mistake they make may be the only giveaway of the game. May be. May be. To be clear, Stanford has played a couple of Pac-12 opponents in the L.A. schools already. Obviously with a win and a loss on both sides of that ledger. I take nothing from the Vanderbilt game. That that, that team ain't winning a game this season. (laughs) And the, the opener against Kansas State ended up looking a little bit better a couple weeks after the fact. But be that as it may, obviously the offense didn't, didn't play well that day. But in terms of all oh, this embarrassment or whatever, Kansas State, you know, got off to a three and zero start. Be that as it may, <laughs> this is still a, a an Oregon team that is just playing better than Stanford right now. Should they find themselves in a close game late, as Aaron outlines, I think a lot of the concerns that we've discussed here today and over the last couple of weeks, particularly on the defensive side, I think can start to weigh on them. If Stanford has the running backs is the key. Because there is a difference. If it's a one-score game in the fourth, but they aren't able to run the football, well, they're still one-dimensional. That dimension may be quite good. Quite good. But sooner or later, you, you know, there is the the really old saying. I know now it's you, you throw the football because you got to get, you know, yards per attempt and everything's got to look like Patrick Mahomes. But there is the expression in... in when you throw the football, two out of three things are bad in terms of the outcome. You know, incompletion and interception. The more that you start to do that, sooner or later, as accurate and efficient as Tanner McKee has been, and he has been terrific. Like I say, he might actually be the best quarterback in this conference right now. Sooner or later, this Oregon defense has been incredibly opportunistic. If they're not the first ones to come away with the takeaway of McKee, then you know somebody eventually will. And if you had to pick a defense who could, you're probably going to pick the defense who leads the country in interceptions. <laughs> it's a good place to start. So, again, we'll obviously recap it next week. And then Oregon enters a bye at really a very opportune time, both from a, a health standpoint and also just in general in the big picture. Forget about the, the, the here and the now in the moment. In general, you want to have the bye week pretty much perfectly in the middle of the season. And that works out pretty nicely for Oregon in that they get it after five weeks. If they start off at 5-0 and and set themselves up for, yes, it's them and Cal. They both have the off week before the, the Friday night game on the 15th. Hey, that's that's a pretty advantageous position to be in, obviously. If you're still undefeated at 5-0, and you see what else happens across college football this weekend. You get an off week while there's further cannibalization in some other conferences. And you could still be sitting pretty. 
and the conversation, you know, right now it's all these teams and who's getting knocked off and who's rising and who, you know, who's in the Heisman race and then who's getting knocked out of that. All of a sudden, a couple of weeks from now, going into that Cal game, if they're at five and oh and two and oh in the league, the number of undefeated teams out there, which is still pretty big, it's going to get whittled down a whole lot in the next couple of weeks. Now, Oregon still wants to be in that group, to be clear, but that number is going to go down a lot in the next few weeks because undefeated teams are playing each other in other weeks. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of cannibalization. So, much to look forward to. All right. We appreciate you guys for listening once again to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcast, so that way it goes right to your phone and etc. Make sure to give us a, a like and a review and the whole thing because it helps more people listen to it as well. So for this latest edition here of the Ducks Confidential Podcast, I'm James Kreppi. He's Aaron Fentress. We will see you next week when we break down the Stanford game and kind of give a mid-season assessment of the Ducks at that point after five games. <laughs>